2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at Let It Roll Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Madeline Bocaro to discuss her book, In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. Email us at letitrollpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Madeline Bocaro, the author of In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. Madeline, welcome. Thank you, Nate. And so this book isn't a straight biography. It's a little different. It's more of an artistic appreciation. And I'd like to thank you for that, because Yoko, to me, is somebody who doesn't get a fair shot. She's maligned and misunderstood. And I think this book uh, is an excellent corrective to a lot of that misunderstanding. Can you tell me a little bit about the concept of the book and what it is, if not a conventional biography? Oh,
3: well, it's a... 558 pages, actually, of individual stories that I had written about Yoko's journey as an artist and her love story with John over the years. And uh, just to describe her artworks and her songs and an album, one at a time, to different fans and friends. And then I realized that I had enough material for a book.
2: And and it's a fine book, and it collects your impressions of her different um, art projects, albums conceptual shows, concert performances, and a little bit about her relationship with John. And I think your point about not trusting books written by critics and, and being an advocate of books written by fans, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's important to me and something I agree with as well.
3: Sure, because a lot of people, actually I saw a Spanish person was looking at my book and she said, oh, can I have a copy of this? I can read this. It's simply written It I can I can read the words. You know, I, when I'm reading words I don't understand in a book about the Ramones or something, you know, I don't want to read that. I want to live it. I want to experience it. I want to remember it. And I don't want to be compared to other aspects of history. I mean, Yoko is Yoko. She she works in her own vacuum. So anyway, I think um, Yoko is very positive and conscious. And I like to speak about the things, the simple way she states um, how we can all work together and heal together and a lot of people are finding the book very very helpful aside from it being about yoga, and you can like read each chapter as a short story and skip around all individual stories
2: you know Yeah, I found that quite helpful um, and and useful for me since I was interested in the music side of things more so than the art. So I read the whole thing through once, and then uh, it was really easy to dive back into the specific chapters about the music. But now I want to talk about Yoko's background, because I think a lot of people don't understand how unique her background is and exactly how privileged she was as a child. Can you tell us about Yoko's family, both her mother's side and her father's side, and how she was raised?
3: Sure, sure. Um, so I intertwined her intriguing family history, it's, it's incredible, into the story of when John meets her parents in Japan for the first time. So her mother was a Yasuja. They were like uh, the Rockefellers of Japan at the time. And, you know, they were Buddhists and her father's side were Christian. And many of her relatives were extremely wealthy aristocrats and artists, musicians, history makers. And uh, some even descended from nobility. And John identified with a particular story of her great grandfather, uh, who's a banking billionaire. And he saw a picture of the guy, and he said, "Oh, this guy is me." And he, you know, because don't say that he was assassinated. <laughs> so it's really Ouch. incredible. Yeah.
2: yeah, that that is an interesting twist, and and. You know, Yoko's never made any bones about her belief in um, supernatural forces and uh, zodiac and and psychics and everything. So that's a big part of the story as well. And that was a big part of John Lennon's. Life with her as well. And I want to drill down into her specific musical background because, you know, a lot of people, particularly Beatles fans who were confronted with Yoko for the first time at, say, Live Piece in Toronto or um, early Plastic Ono Band shows, a lot of people have the mistaken notion that she was an amateur. And anybody who's tried to emulate her vocal stylings we'll figure out pretty quick Mm -hmm. that it's not something that an amateur can do or even really attempt. Um, So could you tell us about her musical education?
3: Sure. So since childhood, she was familiar with written musical scores. She um, learned pitch and harmony and how to score music. And one of her homeworks that she always talks about is that she had to listen to the sounds of the day and transfer them into musical notes. So she had that perfect pitch and she knew all that, and um, that it all made her realize that the composer wasn't the only one that can interpret a work, and that was her whole premise towards art, you know, giving instructions so that people could find their own meaning and complete the work. And, you know, she was into 12-tone composers and Middle Eastern and Indian music and folk songs. Um and, you know, they asked her about her favorite music once, and she said, I don't know, I can't say it's bebop lula You know, she liked all the abstract composers.
2: And she was also a pianist who liked to sit down and play Bach and Beethoven and Debussy um, just to relax, famously inspiring John's song, Because, which was based on her playing with uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. But there's one p- technique in particular that you describe a- – her using the book that was interesting to me, which is something you call the hitai technique that came from Kabuki theater. Can you talk a little bit about that, how she applied it and how it, you know, what's Kabuki theater and and how um, that technique was something that was applicable when Yoko first started jamming with rock and roll bands with John Lennon?
3: Sure. Um, Well, I have a chapter called Queen of the Screen and it explains where it comes from and how, um, yeah, Tatai is from Kabuki Theater. I think it was more of a subconscious influence because she doesn't walk around saying I was influenced by Kabuki Theater, but um, there's another forum called Enka and there's Okinawan folk music that, that she's got that little elements of um, and traditional Japanese children's songs and pop songs, you know, it all like nostalgic flavored melodies and you know she has a lot of melodies as well so it, it, and it's all Japanese influences an entire chapter about the Japanese part of her work you know she reveres the aesthetics and spirituality and the reverence for invisible things and for nature and this is all imbued in her work and she sees the world that's like not just three-dimensional but six-dimensional <laughs> she's not bound by any conformist musical techniques
2: You know, she broke through all the barriers, really. And let's tell me a little bit about her first husband, Toshi Ichinagi, because he is one of the most famous uh, composers in post-war Japanese history, both avant garde and traditional Western music and traditional Japanese music. How did she hook up with him? And also she collaborated with him to some extent as well. Mm -hmm.
3: Oh, yeah. So Toshi, of course, they're kind of the same age, and he's Japanese, and they got together in 1966, um, living in New York City, and they both embraced the modern Western world and their Japanese culture altogether, and they each were classically trained at a young age, and um, Toshi was interested in 12-tone composition. But um, he was at Juilliard, and they didn't have classes in that. So he just became a virtuoso pianist and a composer. And he was an associate of John Cage. And Cage turns him on to avant-garde music. And Yoko Bantoshi attended Cage's seminars in New York City at the New School. And uh, they toured Japan with Cage, who was influenced by Buddhism and Japanese arts as well. And uh, they collaborated with Toshio Miyazumi. He was one of the first avant-garde artists in Japan. And Yoko, Yoko designed his album cover with the cloud on it. So yeah, um, Toshi was great. And he they remained friendly. You know, uh, He once defended her art uh, when uh, she was heavily criticized in a Japanese publication. And he said, you know, critics should understand that artists have an original language that can't be understood by existing senses and he considers yoko to have metaphysical rules so he got her you know he really understood her
0: and
2: let's hear a little bit of yoko this is yoko singing a traditional japanese folk song called sakura and this is from the mike douglas show when uh, john and yoko were regular guests in the early
1: 70s yayoi
2: And that was Yoko Ono singing a Japanese folk song called Sakura on the Mike Douglas show in the early 1970s. And I, I picked that one because I wanted people to understand that Yoko can sing in a conventional sense. And particularly when you hear her singing Japanese and she's not dealing with the additional handicap of the English accent, English is her second language, um, It's it's should be obvious to anyone that she can sing <laughs> from hearing that. Oh, and, um, yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm just pushing back on that just because I've read so many rock critics and fans, uh, you know, assailing Yoko's music without understanding that she is actually a trained technician. At the same time, coming from a background of classical music, traditional and classical Japanese music, and avant garde classical music, which is different from 12 tone classical music, which she was also a student of, plus she collaborated with ornette coleman and free jazz so it's almost like yoko was made in a lab to blow the mind of beatles fans with all this stuff that they had no concept was going on in in the musical world outside of john and paul and i'm a huge beatles fan but you know there's a lot more to the world than she loves you and love me too and yoko brought so much of it to the table it just really freaked people out massively yeah. um and now I want to ask about because her sec- were, go ahead yeah uh, go ahead they she, were you want.
3: I mean I can't find any contradictory statements because people always saying oh she knew about the Beatles but throughout her life through John's life I mean she's always truthful and consistent about not knowing them and there's a quote in uh, that Peter Brown book, The Love You Make, you know, they, the Beatles were reminiscing about their Shea Stadium concerts. And Yoko was oblivious. She said, what were you doing at a baseball stadium? You know, and they said, well, we played two sold out concerts there. And she she said, oh, well, you know, she started telling them about the events that she staged that year, which, of course, they had no idea about. So, you know, she was oblivious to the fact that they were the biggest fan in the world.
2: Yeah, and that's um, something that people find very hard to believe. But if you know people that are focused on their scene and doing their thing and are very busy, and why would she be paying attention to pop music? She's playing on stage with John Cage and exactly. um, you know LaMonte Young, who's an enormous influence on the Velvet Underground, but also kind of the father of minimalism, which is the classical style that kind of brought Western classical music back into popular favor in the early 70s. So uh, yet another very big deal. Um, but her her marriage... To Toshi Falls Apart in the, in the early 60s after they had um, toured together. And she was actually in, in a hospital after having a breakdown when her second husband, Anthony Cox, actually tracked her down in, in the hospital because he had become so fascinated with her work. Can you tell me a little bit about that and their
3: relationship? well, Tony was, uh, he was a fan, I guess, you know, early, early on, and he found her in the hospital, and he, he got her out, and uh, he became her promoter in a way, and they had a young daughter together, and um, they traveled and did, did work in New York, and events, and happenings, and he helped her with her cut piece, and the bagism and all the things she dropping the lions in Trafalgar Square. Um, He he was instrumental in getting her the show at Indica Gallery, where she met John. So yeah, he was a big fan in the beginning. And let's talk a little bit
2: about the conceptual art. I don't want to get too into that because I'm more interested in the musical side of it. But I think understanding what a conceptual artist is, and that Yoko was very much a pioneering conceptual artist of the 20th century. And her book, Grapefruit, which she wrote when she was 19, is just incredibly dense and packed with with tons of ideas, several of which have since been implemented. Can you tell us a little about Grapefruit and the concept, what is conceptual art, and how did Yoko manifest it? Okay, so Grapefruit was published
3: in 1964, and she's made 500 copies, and um, and she she really it was just therapeutic for her. She had been through the war, you know, evacuated from her home as a child, and she was really a fragile person and she wanted to communicate and the the way she communicated was just writing these little scenarios for people to complete in their minds. And sadly she is in that book it now. In fact, like some people say reading some of the chapters in my book are like reading Grapefruit at length because she's just got so many incredible thoughts and messages. Really like self-help messages. And Grapefruit is really fun. She didn't want it to be like a like we were saying, of a critics writing these long drawn out theories. And, you know, she wanted a book like that. She wanted it to be something you could just read and digest and work with. In your
2: own life. And that's something I think that has really baffled a lot of people that are trying to, to deal with Yoko know, Ono's work, and they've just never seen anything like it. And it's just pretty much, I've found that if you just take it at face value, Um, she means what she says, she says what she means and she's planning ideas in your head and, um, you know, think these thoughts experiments through and sometimes take the actions that she, she describes and things will happen. Um, she was also associated with a group called Fluxus and performed, um, with them, uh, at their Carnegie and at the Carnegie recital hall, which isn't the main hall, but it's a smaller venue connected to Carnegie Hall in 1965. She performed cut piece there. Tell us a little about Fluxus and Yoko's relationship with them.
3: George McInnes um, is the founder of Fluxus and he founded on the idea, well, his just paying for conventional art, basically. And it was an amalgam of experimental artists and working in various media and um, He was the first to create kind of a cooperative artist building, which lent the term co-op. And um, he gave them artists the chance to have communal living in New York affordably. And that area where he did this was soon to be known as Soho, which is south of Housing Street. And uh, he founded this Flux House Cooperative. And um, yeah, all the artists flock to him. Of course, he ended up meeting Yoko. He gave her her first exhibition at his gallery. He had this gallery called AG in uh, summer of 61. And uh, it was in the dark because he couldn't afford electricity and the gallery was closed eventually. But yeah, they were just poor artists who got together and formed this movement. Well, he called it a movement. Yoko didn't like the idea of movement. She, she just thought you know we should just all work together
2: and another collaborative project she did around this time was the chamber street concert series and these were a series of concerts in her loft in that same part of town with Lamonté young who i mentioned before the progenitor of minimalism and also electronic composer richard mayfield performed as well as yoko tell us a little bit about the chamber street um concert series
3: Okay, so those are from December 1960 to June 61. And, uh, you know, Yoko was kind of dissatisfied with the attitude of the avant-garde. She felt they were elitist. And she was surviving by teaching Japanese art in the city, and she put her art aside. But um, the Chamber Street concerts were in Tribeca, where artists started living and working there. And um, she was amongst the first people to do this but the context basically is John was still in the Beatles with Pete Best on the drums you know when this was happening and you know when the Beatles first came to America she was staging her own events in Tokyo she published Grapefruit and she did cut piece in Japan and New York and the Carnegie Hall concert and all this you know was before that so she found this five-floor walk up at Chamber Street and there were very few places in the city at the time where unknown artists could perform. And, uh, you know, either downtown or at the Carnegie Recital Hall. So she converted this loft into a performance space and um, it was co-promoted by Lamont Young. And he, he worked with a electronic drones, you know, he composed music with vibrations basically. And, she remembered the exact moment she started doing the concerts and she sensed the future significance of it. And um, so she was in a hurry to begin and she didn't have time to buy furniture. And so everyone was sitting around on orange crates and, but it was just really primitive, but really futuristic as well. Yeah. And, and
2: also I think historically immensely significant because of not only, um, the impact on the avant-garde classical world but also through the rock and roll world and i want to i want to play one of yoko's first collaborations with john lennon now and then when i come back we'll talk a little bit more about the connection between yoko and Lamonte young and what they were doing and the birth of alternative rock from the velvet underground to sonic youth which yoko and Lamonte young are kind of the grandparents of i would say but this is don't worry kyoko Mom is only looking for her hand in the snow, recorded with the Plastic Ono Band. that was yoko ono with the plastic ono band doing don't worry kyoko with uh, eric clapton and john lennon on guitars Klaus forman on bass and is that ringo or andy white on drums i cannot remember um but that is the unfiltered excuse me did you have the answer on that one um don't worry kyoko no it's not andy white it's not ringo yeah okay it's Andy White. and um but that is like the that's the stuff that freaked out the Beatles fans and this was the first Yoko I was exposed to and I can remember as a little kid seeing this song on TV and watching the way my older brothers who were big you know Willie Nelson fans and and uh, Cat Stevens fans freaking out and watching the faces in the crowd at the Toronto live peace festival and watching the hippies just losing it. And I immediately gleefully loved this stuff <laughs> and, and searched oh, yeah. for, for years to try to track this down. It wasn't until I, I was probably four, uh, I think I was six when that, when I saw that on TV and um it took me, you know, another 10, 11 years before I found uh, the the album that that's on. And I've just always loved that. To me, it's right there with Captain Beefheart and um, other experiments in late 60s music that just presage punk rock. And really, I love the confrontation confrontationality of it. And I understand a lot of Yoko fans like to de-emphasize that stuff because they want to say, oh no, she actually wrote a lot more conventional songs and she did dance music and and she's got more popular stuff. But to me i love all that stuff too but don't worry kyoko yeah, is absolutely one of my favorite songs of all time and i'm not it, kidding i'm dead mine,
3: serious about that mine too and it's got you know like if you yeah i grew up to learn and and when i heard on the radio the Ever, everly brothers wake up little susie and i'm like that's the rib you know that's don't worry kyoko and even like um Yoko know, says about Sean, she's like, my son's friends are always exchanging all these CDs that they make privately and that they think are so far out. And she's like, I just have to shut my mouth. I'm not going to say that's like what I used to do. You know, I just say, great, that's cool. You know, <laughs> But it's getting to that point now where people are catching up there. So, yeah, that's, that's the best.
2: Yeah. And, and, and I think one thing that's important to understand about that is that all of the musicians were basically jumping in at the deep end because – The band hadn't rehearsed very much, if at all, especially when they first performed in Toronto. I think they they put together a set list on the plane as they were flying over there. So it's really heavy on the stuff, the material that John Lennon knew, which was 50s rock and roll. And yeah, that Everly Brothers lick as the basis of Don't Worry, Kyoko, it makes sense when you hear them side by side. But when I first heard that Sly guitar riff, it just sounded like the most insane you know, way ahead of its time sort of punk rock noise thing. Um, in fact, yeah. the a punk rock band called The Child Molesters did a cover of that. That was the first time I found it on record after hunting for it for years and, uh, um, oh and, and loved that, you know, Child Molesters version of it. Um, and then, you know, when I found the original version, it was very exciting. So, and, you know, and Yoko is also thrown in the deep end with very little background in rock and roll and never having played with, martial amps and drum kits and you know and she's having to go toe to toe with this rock band with just her voice and um and it's amazing and i also think that people don't get that her singing education um she was familiar with scales that had more notes than the western well-tempered clavier set of notes that bach boiled us down to and so she's hitting what to her are notes but to the western ear sound like she's missing the notes so i mean i think yeah. a
1: lot of the, the,
3: well, he, the sorry she says that john kind of gave her back the body with rock and roll she was all ethereal you know avant-garde stuff but he she always says he woke me up from my mind game which was really healthy because like surrealism was natural for her and she always described emotions in a symbolic way or screaming and um one of my favorite things that she says is that, you know, if you listen to some of my past records, you'll experience songs that touch your delicate nerves, but the harsh ones are really my signature sound. I wanted to break the sound barrier with those sounds and the world needs to listen to our scream. So I just like thought that was really sums her up in a way. And I asked I did- her once, you know, what, what is, what can you do with a scream that you can't say with words? And she says it's just extremely expressive of our emotional life, which we always censor. And people don't want to hear women screaming. They want to hear a pretty song. And that's the male society's idea. And also, she likens um, her song, Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. Um, She's like, people feel it's less natural to hear the sound of women's lovemaking than the sound of a concord killing the atmosphere. You know, but she thinks that both
2: sides are really needed. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also interesting to read that some of her vocalizations, uh, particularly in the song Why, were inspired by having overheard a servant giving birth uh, in um, in the mansion that she grew up in. And that was a classic case of the parents knowing this birth was coming and telling her to stay away from the servant's quarters. And of course, she makes a beeline for the servant's quarters to hear what's going on. And, you know, that Mm -hmm. marked her. And and it's just such a yeah. powerful expression of women's trauma. It's just, um, I, you know, it's, to me, it's one of my absolute favorite pieces of music of, of all time. And, and the thing that made me a Yoko fan for life. But let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, let's talk about how she met John Lennon and, and kind of their relationship. And so Yoko Ono actually um, was charged by John Cage with um, approaching the Beatles to get some of their songwriting manuscripts for a project that he was working on, collecting manuscripts from various composers. She initially approached Paul McCartney, who didn't want to part with his sheets, but thought John Lennon might be more open to it and referred it to him. But they actually first meet at the Indica Gallery in London. Um, Pretty famous story, but go ahead and give your version of it for those who don't
3: know it. Okay, so yeah, it was November 1966, the owner of the gallery, John Dunbar, he was uh, Marianne Faisal's husband at the time, he brings John to Yoko's exhibition on the night before the opening, it's called Unfinished Paintings and Objects. So it's an indicate gallery. So basically, you know, Yoko's older, she's eight years older than John, and John had just turned 26. She was in her second marriage to Tony when they had a daughter together, And she was struggling as an artist in Tokyo and New York. So she, she came to London and she just felt like she described it as a shimmer in the air. She just felt the electricity. So, um, it was in the basement of Indica Books and it was in the center of swinging London and, uh, Paul McCartney's, um, girlfriend, Jane Asher, um, had a brother, Peter, and he was a co-owner along with Barry Miles and, um, it was in Mason's Yard in Mayfair on uh, hip area, a little cul-de-sac, and, you know, the St. James Club where Hendrix played and other greats, and, um, you know, so McCartney was a big supporter of the gallery, and he introduced Yoko to John, to John, because she um, had asked him for some manuscripts, and John, you know, Paul never parted with any of that stuff, and I um, so, yeah, Paul was like a little jealous because he thought he would be avant-garde one. You know, he loved all these artists and was into this gallery. But John became wildly avant-garde because he was so constricted living in Weybridge and his wife didn't understand how free he wanted to be. So um, he kind of beat Paul to the punch and, you know, <laughs> the avant-garde world. So, um, yeah, it was like after the Beatles' final concert, you know, they had recently released Yesterday and Today and Recording Revolver, and uh, they were just about to begin the session for Sgt. Pepper, and this is when John and Yoko met. So Dunbar told John that this avant-garde artist would be staging a happening. So John, of course, thinks, oh, great orgy, you know, but of course, he just sees this little woman with her long black hair arranging these weird objects for her exhibition, And, you know, it was a little mad that Dunbar brought somebody there. She was just, like, busy getting it ready. Um, But she said, you know, she's standing in front of her exhibit, this blank canvas, and she's like, John's looking at it like it's the most important painting in the world. (laughs) And she's like, oh, this guy looks nice, you know. So uh, the first thing she did was hand John a card that said breathe, and he's like, okay. And then... Then he saw the ladder, white ladder up to the ceiling with a magnifying glass hanging from it. And this painting on the ceiling had those tiny words that said, Yes. And that was just their way to heaven basically and that was it from there on. He said, you know, everything was anti this, anti that, and this was something positive. So I, I was in, you know. So
2: that was and the, how they kind of uh, And the two of them correspond then uh, and build a friendship for the next year and a half or so. And ultimately, um, one night, Cynthia Lennon is away from home and Yoko comes to Lennon's house and they consummate their relationship and record the Unfinished Music Two Virgins album. Tell us about that collaboration. Okay, so yeah,
3: about 18 months after they met, they finally get together because she had been in Paris and London and you know, she was trying to avoid it, actually. She didn't want to get involved with someone. She just wanted to do her work. But, um, so, like, she always believes in that unfinished concept. And she says she got it from Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. And um, she always says that she feels like Mozart at the end of that film where he's writing and writing and trying to finish. And she's trying to do that in every aspect of her life. But everything seems like unfinished. Um, so it was their first recording together. It was a sound collage. Um, they thought it sounds in the mind of the listener, not really in the grooves of a record. So it's really just the sound of two artists falling in love and noodling around with tape loops and wordless vocals and having a sort of rebirth, but on drugs, of course. <laughs> and uh, they did the, the Naked Album cover, is like the first new selfie, I guess. And they... Uh, shot the world in this birthday feast there and uh you know the last because john took the picture with a, a timer and cleared everybody out of the room so i could do it in secret and then the whole world sees it <laughs> That's their humor, you know. <laughs> yeah and it's interesting
2: in the book she talks about how Lennon kind of brought the humor into their work and and their collaboration and it's I think easy for a lot of people to see her as some sort of Svengali who lured John Lennon away from the Beatles and got him doing all this crazy stuff. But it's pretty clear when you really parse out their collaborations that John Lennon was as crazy as anybody ever and was in a way using Yoko to help him break free of the incredibly constraining Beatles public image and get back to being – You know, that linen, which is what every mother in Liverpool called him as they told their kids to stay away from him. Like he had mastered, you know, communications to the level that he could become could co-create the most popular band in the history of the world. And so. To me it's very clear that he architected all of his actions with yoko i mean i don't think that they had any idea what the reactions would be but i think they were very conscious and lennon in particular was very conscious that he was breaking down his public image and killing beetle john so that john lennon could live
3: right right and there's this amusing clip of like outtakes from two virgins and you hear you know, she's going to go crazy with her vocalization, and John is jokingly counting her down. He's like, okay, we're the one, two, one, two, and she's laughing. It's just hilarious. They have this great, great rapport and humor that they just clicked.
2: And tell us about the other um, Unfinished Music albums, Life with the Lions and the Wedding Album that they did together.
3: Um, So the Wedding Album is based upon, well, you know, it's all, it's all silly, it's really, but It's hilarious. Sean actually put out a repackaging of it recently and including all the exact replicas of the stuff included inside. And he's actually playing it in the video and and kind of laughing at how crazy it really is. But, you know, they're calling each other's names and they're playing radio snippets and they're just experimenting and the moments of silence is is the cool thing. I think that's kind of an homage to John Cage. I always wonder if she had to pay him royalties on the silence because that was his thing. <laughs> but,
2: that would be fair enough. And Life with the Lions though has a much more poignant aspect to it.
3: Well, she had had a miscarriage and they were recording it in the hospital there. So and the and they have a baby's heartbeat on um,
2: the record. So yeah, and you can and you yeah. can hear hear it fading away to silence and it's a really um, for anybody who's ever lost a child like that it's a very powerful and sad thing
3: Yeah, people this don't is... understand they just continue to bash her they send her voodoo dolls and uh, awful awful stuff that she had to endure which you know it's going to be the focus on her life story in the end you know the prejudice the racial stuff the, the feminist stuff but basically she just looks upon it all it hurt you know but she looks upon it as a bliss in her life she just continued as a blinders on she just did what she had to do compared to the the scope of her her whole 89 years you know it's just a part of it
2: to her yeah and let's hear our next song snippet this is a song called mrs lennon um that alex Chilton a big star later based his song holocaust on these chord changes
1: Checking the scars
2: and that was mrs lennon from the fly album which was the same album that the version of don't worry kyoko we played earlier was on um and to me just a totally different side of yoko's artistry and I've, I heard Holocaust by Big Star long before I heard, um, but I got my hands on the Fly album. I think I got a hold of Fly in 90 or 91. And as soon as I heard this, I was like, ah, Alex Jilton, you are busted. Like, this is a, a cold swipe of these chords.
3: Yeah, but Holocaust uh, demo is even more beautiful. I, I love the demo. It's gorgeous. But Mrs. Lennon is one of my favorites as well. I mean, uh, she wrote that, you know, at Tittenhurst Park, the big white home in Ascot. And um, she felt that life was really strange there. And it reminded her of the film Citizen Kane. And when, like, the gardener came up to her from a long distance away. And he said, what kind of flowers do you want planted in the garden, Mrs. Lennon? And she just felt, like, so empty and strange. So that's how. But but also, there are very prominent prescient lyrics in this song where she's like half the world is always killed or half the world is always dying and you know neither of them ever left each other it, it, some of this this happens in a lot of her songs i have a whole chapter called premonitions about this stuff. it's, it's incredible
2: yeah it really does seem like subconsciously she was anticipating um John's fate and and her fate as a widow through this stuff and it's pretty heavy and let's talk about this period you know john lennon then famously takes yoko along to the white album sessions from the beginning which you know disrupts the beatles dynamic she collaborates on revolution nine with john and george harrison while um, mccartney's out of town um but at the same time Paul writes a song called Hey Jude, which John and Yoko both saw as an endorsement of their relationship. Can you talk a little bit about her relationship with the Beatles and how she interacted with their creative process?
3: So with the Beatles, John was the one who wanted her at his side all the time. Like she said, even to go to the bathroom. And she just she was so in love with him that, you know, she's okay. So she was with him and she didn't want to intrude, but, you know, when she was asked for an opinion, she would give it. Um, But yet with Hey Jude, it was really interesting because Paul's initial negativity about John being with her um, changed in that song, and he became selfless, and he's reassuring John to pursue a relationship with her, and he's, you know, John knew that the lyrics were speaking to him. And uh, it's unmistakable. He says, you found her, now go and get her. And you're waiting for someone to perform with. It's obviously, those lines aren't meant for Julian, which maybe the rest of the song might be. But to me, it's really obvious when Paul sings to let it out and let it in. It kind of refers to Yoko's first instruction to John, which is breathe. So, you know, this is is Paul being really nice and saying, okay, I surrender, You, you know, go be with her um what was the other thing you asked me oh about you know if she broke them up i mean obviously (laughs) she didn't break them up in fact she said that you know she felt like a tremendous wave of fear when she um saw that john wanted to leave the band because she just was concerned that her artistic freedom would be compromised if he wasn't occupied with them. And, you know, she was always an independent artist, and she never co- collaborated with anyone. So she felt like her power was had. And somebody suggested that maybe John's power was doubled. And she said, yeah, I agree. And she was really nervous and concerned when John told her, now it's you and me. I mean, could you imagine? Like, a real will say you. you. <laughs> oh, it's just <laughs> now. And, but she was probably more concerned not that he was so famous or whatever she's concerned about sacrificing her own work and having to deal with collaborating so
2: yeah i mean he's an incredibly forceful person there's an interesting bit in the book where she's talking to one of her psychic advisors i can't remember what the person's particular occult specialty was but the person said that Yoko was like a wind that was roaring over the earth but was ungrounded and that she had just met somebody who was grounded like a mountain and that was John Lennon and mm-hmm. I thought that was an excellent description of what they were bringing to the table because Lennon was so wealthy and famous and used to channeling his creativity into into things that that drew a mass audience and very different from what Yoko had been doing in the avant-garde scene. But let's talk a little bit about the Plastic Ono Band era. They collaborated on live shows. They played on the Rock and Roll the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which of course wasn't released for many years. They played the live piece at Toronto show at the Toronto Rock and Roll Festival. And then come together to put out the Plastic Ono Band albums, the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band and the Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band, which to me, if you take those two albums and mix them into a, a, a iTunes playlist or a YouTube playlist and shuffle them, you get the full mm-hmm. statement. I, I don't think you can get either album without hearing its mate. And a lot of people, I think, missed out by only listening to the John Lennon Album. Can you talk a little bit about the Plastic Ono Band, what the concept was, and how they collaborated in those projects?
3: Okay, so there's a whole chapter on Plastic Ono Band, okay? A whole chapter about the al- each album, every album, every song, but also a chapter on the band members as they evolved, you know? So the first the first one was, I guess, you know, the Toronto, um, Life, piece in Toronto, when they assembled quickly. <laughs> um, and the, band, the concept of Yoko's idea, she was asked to do a concert in Berlin. She imagined having a plastic band on stage with her. So on the sleeve for Gift Piece a Chance, you see those four uh, clear plastic objects with a microphone and a tape recorder and a TV set. So those kind of refer to the Fab Four, you know, four pieces, or um, the TV set is an homage to Nanjing Pike, who was famous for the TV sculptures. And so that was her little concept. And, um, you know, the band, of course, was the first. There were Clapton and Klaus Borman with Toronto. And then Ringo joined for, with Klaus Borman for the POV albums. And then actually in 2010, Sean revised the Plastic Ono band name for um, Yoko's birthday concerts in the city and kept them for the next few albums. So, yeah, there's a whole list of people who were in the Plastic Ono band.
2: Yeah, and that concept of having a flexible group of um, collaborators that come and go as they're able to, that was just something that was in the air in the rock and roll world. Crosby, Stills, and Nash were obviously trying to do that, um, but got pinned down into a supergroup. And and Plastigono Band, they managed to stay free. It was always John and Yoko, but everybody else came and went. And in fact, on uh, her Plastigono Band album, there's a collaboration with Ornette Coleman, Charlie Hayden, and uh, David Eisenhund and Ed Blackwell Two drummers, uh, Charlie Hayden, the bassist that played with Coleman through most of his most famous works, and Coleman's playing trumpet on the song AOS. Tell us a little bit about that, about that collaboration and how it came together.
3: So in early 1968, you know, Coleman invited Yoko to perform, like uh, just at one show with his band at the Royal Albert Hall, and. They did a piece called Emotional Modulation. Well, the evening was called Emotional Modulation. That's how it was advertised. And the piece, um, Yoko calls it out, A-O-S. And um, she combined, I asked her about this. She said it was the Japanese word ao, A-O, which was the word for blue, the color. And ao, O-S was from the English word chaos. So she, together it was a blue chaos. And she didn't confirm this, but I'm thinking it was kind of a pun on Miles Davis' album title, kind of blue, because she felt, you know, she was in the jazz realm now. (laughs) But um, basically, she just did some vocalizing. She stipulated that it had to be her own piece and not theirs. And she scored it without any notation. She wrote words telling what the musicians to play And um, it was things like, think of the days when you had to suffer in silence for eternity before you would give. And then you were afraid to give. And Isabel was emotional turmoil that she wanted to get out of the influences. And then she wanted some silences in there. And she's like, this is no mood or whatever you call it. It's real. Forget what you learned in the music world. So it was just her thing. And then uh, it was a rehearsal for this that was recorded and ended up on her yoko on a plastic
2: on a band album and it's a really incredible collaboration and gives a totally different feel for how musicians coming from a completely different place than the rock and roll world that lennon and his collaborators were coming from interact with yoko and her music so yet another tradition that's you know just as alien um from what she mm-hmm. was doing as rock and roll is so uh, i love hearing that compare and contrast but also Definitely cats who are able to throw down with Yoko at her own level and match her for her intensity. And now let's play our final song snippet. This is um, one from the 80s that actually had quite a bit of success on the on the dance charts in the U.S. in the 80s. This is Yoko Ono walking on thin ice. And that was Yoko Ono, Walking on Thin Ice, one of the last songs that John Lennon ever played on. Um, and we're skipping a lot of stuff. We're, we're skipping over the long weekend when Yoko sent John Lennon away for 18 months with May Pang, um, the Sometime in New York City album, which features their collaborations with um, Frank Zappa's band and also the Plastic Ono supergroup from the Lyceum concert, and a number of stuff. But I want to get to the death of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's how she dealt with that, both music, especially musically. Um, how did she confront and express her grief publicly in this per- horrible period?
3: Oh, well, right after she just kind of had to hold herself up in, in, in the apartment because she was listening to tapes of John's songs being played outside her window. Imagine, I mean, she, like, it's unbelievable. And she had to deal with telling Sean. She couldn't tell until the next day, had to show her child where this happens and how, and, uh, you know, the nightmare. So she was quiet for a while. She dealt with the funeral aspect of it by making it a vigil of silence. And thousands of people gathered right, of course, underneath her window. And um, she, she began hiding under those sunglasses that actually John had chosen for her maybe he knew something maybe he didn't you know and she was wondering why why did he choose these he said you should wear these all the time now so they kind of protected her and um she didn't really emerge until six months later well she went into the studio right away and started recording season of glass um and finishing some songs that had started together and adding others and of course the album cover reflects the nightmare to john's glasses with blood on them showing what the world had done to him and to her. And, you know, she says, you know, she saw a floor with a pool of blood. And that was a mild expression of what she saw, you know, and she's amazed that people felt that she was exploiting him. She felt like, you know, this is what he would have wanted to say. Like look this what you did. So, you know, the songs on there are very poignant. Very, some are beautiful, but there's just an element of glass through the whole record. It's just, fragile, shattered. It it's beautiful actually.
2: Yeah, it's a really powerful album. And that was a period of time in which a new generation of alternative artists, the B-52s, uh, come to mind, obviously, um, as you know, people who had grown up on Yoko's music and had been influenced by by them. And so there's a whole counter narrative emerging of people who were fans of yoko ono who got what she was doing and were extending it talk a little bit about that and how she interacted with the new wave and the and the emergent dance club scenes
3: oh well she eventually like much later ended up having dance, hit singles on Billboard's dance club charts and um she would go into the, to the blues with the djs and dance and well, and she was in her glory because john had said that walking on the ninth would be her first number one and she couldn't believe it when it actually
2: happened it made it to number one on the on the u.s dance charts and i guess we do have a little bit more time to talk about the double fantasy album which they collaborated on after um taking five years off to to um raise sean together talk about that collaboration and how they worked with jack douglas together in the studio
3: Okay, so Double Fantasy was, of course, their emergence from seclusion after raising Sean, who's now like five years old, and he, um, you know, he didn't need to be so closely watched anymore. So they, they, um, they emerged and they did this dialogue of uh, alternating songs. And, um, of course, hers are more, Constructed at this point. There's none of really the avant garde stuff. But um, she loved this album. Like, on BBC, they asked her, which album would you save if you were on a deserted island and it was being washed away? And she said, Double Fantasy. So, you know, it comes out with like hard times are over, right? It's a new beginning. And It's just so sad to listen to it after the fact, you know. But it was a brilliant album. It was very hopeful. It was truthful. There were songs about um, everything on the album. It wasn't just for a pop album, you know. Paul John had said that it's for everyone that's in his age group now, that they have kids now, and they have settling into adulthood and conflicts in relationships and songs about their son and love songs. It had everything
2: yeah and it becomes her most popular work uh, in the wake of his dead death. It's a massive bestseller and because it alternates John and Yoko songs, I think the fans were forced to confront yoko and I think a lot of fans turned around on Yoko around this time once they saw the dignity which she carried herself as you know the most famous widow on the world in the world and and the suddenly you know her husband's been martyred and the way she dealt with that and it's also been interesting to watch her over the decades since then as she has basically fought john's corner in the various legal and political and artistic struggles within the beatles empire there's been various lawsuits back and forth she's handled those with the plum um she's really emerged as a force as a business person and as uh, the manager of lennon's legacy continuing to make movies very recently a, a recent movie i found really um inspiring and, and interesting that made very clear how much of a role she played in the creation of Imagine and that Lennon actually said that he felt he should have given her a co-writer credit uh, in retrospect.
3: Right, and she did get that, you know, finally. Um, uh, they credited her. They played a tape of him saying this, you know, so that was great. And so now she's coach, She has a little award. They have given her awards now about the
2: co-writing on that. Yeah, and and I think that's long overdue. And and you know, so much of the positive image of John Lennon was around his role as, you know, an advocate for peace. And she was definitely his partner in all that. And there's so much more of the story I wish we had time to get into, but it's been great talking about um Yoko Ono with you, Madeline. The book is In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. My guest has been Madeline Bukero. So thanks so much for coming on and, and and singing a song that's not often sung. Uh, and in this world, and that's the song of Yoko Ono.
3: Right. Thank you. There's so much to learn.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at com. Next week, Nate welcomes Howie Abrams to discuss Joseph I, aka H.R. and the Bad Brains. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.